Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 40. And uh, it's been about a week since I've been on, so as I sent out an email... Uh, to my email list last week. I may only be podcasting one time a week uh, for the immediate future while I'm working on drafting a new book that I'm under contract for. So um, if you, uh, I might be able to get two a week, but uh, unfortunately if I can't, we'll go with one. I still will do one a week. Um, if you're not on my email list and you're listening to this podcast, you need to get on that. You just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. M-C-C-L-A-N-A-H-A-N.com. And uh, at the top of the page, you can give me your email address and you get a free gift for it. You get a goodie. Actually, you get two goodies. You get a PDF version of a free ebook and you get the audio version read by yours truly. So if you are not on the email list, please consider doing that. Get on that email list and you get a free book and audio book, ebook and audio book. The uh, book is uh, Forgotten Founders. And uh, it's about several founding uh, members of the founding generation that are not well known. Okay, so what I'm going to do today is uh, actually something I've been wanting to do for a little while, and there have been some questions about this. Uh, people have sent me requests. One of them was, what are the top 10 history books? What would you recommend people reading in terms of a history book? Others uh, are all along the same theme. You know, what, what books do you recommend reading? Well, I did one on the Constitution. Read these books on the Constitution in a previous podcast. So I thought I would do one on 10 books that I think would be uh, important if you are in a civilization restart. Now, what do I mean by that? If we had a Walking Dead scenario, so we've got the Walking Dead, the Fear of the Walking Dead coming up uh, just a couple of weeks, uh, the second half of the, of the second season, and then, of course, in October, we've got... Uh, the new season of The Walking Dead. And as I've already done a podcast on The Walking Dead, episode three, I talk about why I think The Walking Dead is a very interesting show historically and philosophically. So now that you've, now you, have a, you have a scenario where civilization has fallen apart, now, of course, at the beginning, you're not going to be able to do this type of stuff. You're not going to be sitting around reading books. Um, so hopefully you would have had you've read these books before you had that situation. Because at the beginning of a, of a situation where civilization falls apart, your first objective will be simple, simply survival, uh, which is going to be very, very difficult. Uh, as people form gangs and bands and these type of things, well, eventually you're going to get to a situation where you have uh, probably walled communities like you do in The Walking Dead. And you will have uh, defensive groups where you will have to protect your stuff. But in that walled community, as things develop, 
you will start to see that break down. I mean, this is what happened in the Middle Ages. You had uh, civilization break down because of the Vikings, and before that it was the Germanic tribes. And so people retreated to walled communities where they had castles, uh, and eventually that broke down as the Renaissance took hold. Uh, so you had a cultural and philosophical revival. Of course, the other thing that helped it break down was that kings had standing armies, and they had a lot of money to uh, blow up these castles, and so the feudal estates no longer mattered. So that might happen uh, eventually in, uh, in a end-of-the-world scenario, end-of-the-civilization scenario. But one thing that never changes is human nature. And all of this, human nature will not change. And I think, you know, when people ask me, at the beginning of every semester, I, I talk about, you know, what is history and why it's important. And one of the things I do is bring up quotations from different individuals over time and, and discuss what they said history is. And one of the things that you get out of it if you study history is the nature of history. So you have some individuals believe that history is a timeline, right? You have point A, point B, and everything happens in the middle. In fact, uh, that's your life or the life of a community or the life of a civilization, whatever it is. And in that timeline, uh, if, in people that believe in the Middle Ages, for example, that there was a Middle Ages, see history in that way because you would have a deviation from the timeline. So that becomes the Middle Ages, and then it comes back to the timeline with the Renaissance. What people don't realize, and of course I use these terms because it helps us you know, ground a time and you can get an image in your mind. What most people don't realize is that history is not really that way. In fact, I think the Greeks really had it right, that history is really cyclical. There was a Dark Ages in Greek history. During the, during the Middle Ages of the Western civilization, current civilization, there was also a Renaissance, several of them, during these quote-unquote Middle Ages. So, and if you look at our current environment, you know, history is... is rather cyclical. It means, you know, people will say, well, history repeats itself. It doesn't really repeat itself. It mirrors itself. And that's because there's humans involved in the equation. And the Greeks understand, understood human nature. Uh, people do similar things in similar situations, which is why history seems to repeat itself. The problem is that people have hubris. They don't believe that they will do the same thing over again. So this is why you have education. You would hope that people would make better decisions as uh, there was a quote about that, you know, history is not to make us cleverer for next time, but wiser forever. Lord Acton. And so that's why you study history. Livy, who wrote a very uh, important history of Rome, you know, said that history is the best medicine for a sick mind. And that's because you can see what you want to emulate and what you want to avoid. So we'd hope that people would read history and make better decisions, it doesn't always happen. And that gets down to the nature of, of man. And one of the books that I'm going to talk about is important in that process. So I've got 10 here. Now, this is not the definitive list. There are other books you could put on this. But I was trying to think of books that would help philosophically reboot civilization. Now, in this list, you won't find any books on medicine or engineering. Things would be very important. You got to have sanitation. You got to have people being able to take care of each other. You got to have construction. So none of that is listed here. 
you would hope that you would have in some way some skills there that people could could carry this out. But you would need books on medicine and engineering and things of that nature, mathematics. Because it's kind of hard to live in a civilization unless you can build things and have people survive diseases or have people have adequate sanitation. Um, of course, not listed here are any books on agriculture. You would need to be able to grow food. But if you just wanted to have 10 books on philosophy and history and, and man, you know, how, how do we make man work? How do we persuade man to not be a savage? And that is the real, the real question here. You know, when you have civilization, is man inherently good or, or is man inherently evil? And so you have this question, does civilization make man good or does civilization make man evil? Um, I think that the position that civilization makes man good is the stronger position. That if man does not have civilization, they are savages. But civilization helps. So I'm not going to include any books by Thomas Hobbes because, I mean, that's his position. You know, this is where the state, you need the boot to ensure that man survives. I think that for a time, as things are, are coalescing around groups and getting walls and all these other things, uh, you are going to have a situation where you're going to have a lot of violence. There's no doubt about it. But I think this is the thing I, I said in, in the podcast on The Walking Dead when you look at that particular situation. You had, uh, for example, the governor and others who were the Hobbesians, and then you had Herschel, who was the Aristotelian, and I'm going to talk about Aristotle in this list, who you know, believed that man was inherently good, but, uh, but there was also a, a foundation to that in philosophic texts and theological texts, and so we'll ha- I will talk about that. All right, so let's get started. Now, the number one book you're going to need if you want to have civilization where you don't have people just going around taking your stuff and killing people, is going to be the Bible, uh, both Old and New Testament. And I was in a seminar the other day about leadership. And uh, one of the, the speaker asked, well, who are the greatest leaders of all time? And people started saying, you know, Mother Teresa and Gandhi. And one person they didn't mention, and I think it's, it's amazing to me, but that's Jesus Christ. And if you look at leadership, and one of the things the speaker said, what what a leader will do will will do the hard things. They'll do the hard things that nobody else wants to do, and they'll show you the path uh, to a good society or a good organization by, by doing those hard things. And if you look at Christ, he sacrificed himself for the greater good of humanity. And I think that's one thing that separates Christianity from every other major monotheistic religion. It's the only religion where the leader of the religion believed in self-sacrifice for the good of the whole. And so that makes, that separates Christianity. Of course, you have all the other stuff in the Bible, you know, the philosophy of Christ, the humanitarian end of it. Uh, you, of course, also have the Ten Commandments, which are important when you look at things about, you know, don't take my stuff. There is, a eternal, there is an eternal punishment for this. And that is important. If you don't have that eternal punishment, as, as I've mentioned before, you're going to have to have, you're going to get people who believe in communism then, which essentially is taking my stuff. It's envy. And so you have to have this belief in an, in an eternal punishment, a firm foundation of property rights, 
in order to have civilization, in order to feel comfortable, because you don't take life, you don't take liberty, and you don't take property. And uh, when you look at the Ten Commandments, and then you look at, at Christianity and Christian theology, and um, again, the philosophy of Christ, this saturates it. Love thy neighbor. So just the basic tenets of Christianity are important in creating civilization. You don't have Western civilization without Christianity. It doesn't exist. The fact that we can all coexist together in a way where we're not slaughtering each other. I mean, people don't realize in the United States and the Western world, I think they are because there's pressures coming from other areas now, but Christianity makes that possible. Whether you're a Christian or not, it's the Christian foundation that makes that possible. So you have to have that. And I think there's no better guide for that than Christianity in, in the Bible. Now, if you're a Christian or not, you're still living in the blessings of Christianity uh, and the way that we organize our lives. So you got to have the Bible. Now, I'm going to mention one other book in terms of Christian theology in a few minutes. In terms of histories and understanding the nature of man, and I mentioned the Greeks, I have a couple of books by Greek historians. The first is Herodotus's Persian Wars. Now, this isn't going to tell you anything about uh, you know, culture. I mean, you, you, I would say not, it's, it's saturated with culture, but in terms of, you know, how you're going to live, no one wants to live like uh, the people in the Persian Wars. Okay? The Persians, now you can get an example of what you don't want to live like. You don't want to be under a despotism like Persia. Uh, and you do have Herodotus discussing other cultures in this particular book. Uh, you might want to emulate the the Athenians here, maybe even the Spartans at times. There are things about both the Athenians and the Spartans at that particular time in Greek history, you know, 490 B.C., you're in the 5th century, that were remarkable. You know, for the Spartans, it is sacrifice, it's leadership, it's duty, it's honor. For the Athenians, you're looking at uh, a high culture, a high civilization that is being protected, individual rights that are being protected by the Athenian and Spartan armies against an Oriental despotism. So you have that, and I think that story is important to understand. You know, Herodotus wrote this. It was the first secular narrative history in, in the history of man. And so that's why I think that particular book is important. It's not an easy read. It's not one you're just going to sit down and blow through in an hour. It's 900 pages or so. But it is an excellent foundation of history and why you write history and while you tell the story, you are preserving a culture or a civilization. And so I, I do like that. Uh, why I think that uh, everyone should read Herodotus's The Persian Wars. So uh, you need that. So we've got a couple of books down now on the list. The next work by a Greek would be Plutarch's Lives. Now, uh the reason this is an important book, and there are there are errors both in Herodotus and uh, Plutarch's lives, and of course Plutarch wrote a number of other important works as well. But the thing about Plutarch's lives is it gives you it gives you examples of what type of leadership you would want. And of course, in this particular book, you know Plutarch was living centuries after um, the Greek Golden Age, but he was writing about. Roman and Greek leaders, and there were parallels there. You know, he was trying to show that these Roman leaders were parallel to these great Greek leaders, 
And so these are things that we should look for in, the quali- in, in leadership. These are qualities we should look for in individuals who will lead society forward. And that's the important thing about Plutarch's lives. Not that he's always accurate, but he's talking about qualities. From, from a standpoint of, is he always accurate? Well, I think there's a lot of question about that. But from a standpoint of what you would want to find in a leader, I think Plutarch is invaluable. He also wrote a book on you know, Spartan sayings, sayings of Spartan women, saying of Spartan men. Um, so what Plutarch was doing is trying to create a narrative that fit to um, how to live. And I think you know, the Greeks are important for this. So are the, so are the Romans. And I'm going to talk about one Roman historian who did the exact same thing. But when you look at you know, how to live, and this is why I'm saying this is a re- civilization restart. Right, So you'd have examples, good things, bad things. Don't be like this guy, be like this guy. And when I mentioned you know, the Bible, you have, be like Christ. Uh, don't be like the Persians, be like the Greeks of the Golden Age. Don't be like this particular Roman or Greek leader, be like this Roman or Greek leader. And so I think that this is where you get to the point where, you, again, you're starting to reboot civilization. What do you want out of leadership? And that's why I think these, this, this particular work is important and why I also think the Persian Wars. You know, Plutarch didn't actually like Herodotus. He wrote a very scathing essay about Herodotus' work. But, and and uh, Plutarch was more in favor of Plato than Aristotle. And I like, uh, I mean, in some ways, you know, they're the same. But... Uh, in some ways, they're not. So uh, I- I'm going to talk about Aristotle, not Plato. But still, uh, I think that um, when you look at works that will help you define what you want to have in leadership and in individuals, Herodotus and Plutarch are invaluable. Now, the Roman historian who I thought was very good in this regard was Tacitus. Uh, his two books... Uh, which you can get in very small combined volume, Germania and the Agricola. These little works are about what the people of Great Britain and Germany were like as the Romans expanded into these areas during the Roman Empire. And what Tacitus does in these books, again, is, is, is play off how the Romans had become decadent and wasteful, whereas the people of Britain and Germany in particular, Germania, were to be emulated. Uh, he really liked, now, I mean, he didn't like everything about the Germans, but he really liked some of the qualities that they had. They were fiercely loyal. Uh, they were monogamous. Um, they enjoyed tradition. In fact, what he was basically saying is that in many ways, these Germans were like the old Roman citizens. So when you read Germania and you read the Agricola, that's what you get out of it more than anything else, is, you know what, Romans have become decadent, We're sorry. We need to be more like these Germans who had it right. Now, he talked about how the fact these guys all love to drink and gamble, and they weren't weren't really good people all the time, but they had qualities that mirrored those old Roman citizens. Uh, You know, uh, respect for your father, respect for your laws and your customs. You know, the father was to instill certain things in his family and his community by default. That was important to Tacitus as he's trying to revive these old Roman values that had made Rome great during the Republic. And we had gotten to the empire by this point, and Rome wasn't so great anymore. So I think that um, Tacitus's uh, 
Germania and the Agricola, you should read those books. And again, they're short. They're not long. wouldn't take you long to read them. Now, I'm going to throw in Aristotle. A lot of people say, well, read Aristotle's politics. Politics really was an outgrowth of Aristotle's views on ethics. And so I think you should rather, you should rather read his ethics. And the important thing about Aristotle and ethics, um, he has all the metaphysical material, uh, the prime mover and all these other things. But the important thing about ethics is his belief in what's called the doctrine of the mean. And when you read politics, you see that this is this saturates, this doctrine of the mean saturates politics as well. So you have this belief that uh, you don't want to overindulge, but you don't want to abstain. And so you have to have some type of guidebook on what to do in society. He's not saying be completely rigid and abstain from things, but don't become a drunkard, for example. Uh, don't overindulge, but don't abstain. Lead a life that's based on moderation, and that applies to all things. Don't do something too much. Don't do something not at all or too little. Do something that uh, you know would be uh, moderate. Now, when you look at political life, of course, you're going to have your ideas, and you wouldn't want to say, you know, uh, sacrifice your beliefs for, uh, for a moderate goal uh, because you have to have morals and values. And so Plato does get into this, uh, but you have to have ethics. So, but there is, there is a way to do this where you, you are moderate in many facets of life. And, he, you know, when you look at politics, what he basically says is that monarchy is the best system, but you can't always guarantee that the son will be as good as the father. And so what he believes in is that you have a moderate, a moderate government where you have elements of monarchy, you have elements of, of oligarchy, elements of democracy, which creates a moderate government. There's moderation there. There's checks and balances is what he's getting into. Uh, and he was studying all the constitutions of the Greek city-states and writing this book. So I think that uh, Aristotle's ethics are very good in that way. Uh, now, St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theological is also important. It's a Christ work of Christian theology. And so it's going to be heavily, when, when you read this, you know, Aquinas was a, was a Catholic. Of course, all Christians were Catholics at this time. But what he's trying to do is get you to understand Christianity. And whether you're a Catholic or not, you can get that. I mean, it's, it's uh, how to convert people to Christianity in many ways. But there are some interesting parts of this book that I think would play out in terms of rebuilding civilization. One is his view of war. What is a just war? I know there's a lot of libertarians that listen to this podcast, so this is the idea. What is a just war? Of course, uh, you know, Aquinas would say that a just war is one that's defensive. No offensive war is just. So uh, you know, I went back to The Walking Dead, and you get this now in, in the last— if you've, if you've not watched all the episodes, you know, I'm going to give you some spoilers here, but when you get into the, the sixth season— and you have this conflict between the saviors and, and the Alexandria group. Uh, the Alexandria group was on the wrong side in many ways. They were the aggressors. So Aquinas would say that's not a just war. And the saviors would be in the position of, of defending themselves. And so you've had, you've had this group, you know, you have roles reversed. Of course, you're in the end of a civilization era uh, and so people are starving, but maybe there could have been another way. And I think that's what people miss out of this. Was there another way besides attacking and killing another group? They were the aggressors. That's not a just war. The saviors were on the defensive position, and they were waging a just war. So you have that. 
Uh, you have his views on usury and other things, which I think are interesting. So uh, this particular work, I think, would work in that you're trying to create the basis of a formal theology, but also he has positions on other matters that would help civilization as well. Now, what about American legal and uh, political or constitutional tradition? Well, you know, the American political and legal tradition is based on the British political and legal tradition, which is based on Western civilization. But, uh, and, I, and I can't say that the U.S. Constitution would always be the best model. I mean, I think that there are parts of it that are very good. Federalism is very good if you're dealing with large structures. Um, so if you're starting to get to that point where you had to start dealing with larger groups and how do you interact, uh, I think that St. George Tucker's uh, views on the Constitution as commentaries on Blackstone's laws, right? Blackstone's commentaries on the English law, uh, I think would be very good. We would have to have some basis of English law. English law has preserved liberty and civilization better than any other uh, legal foundation in the history of the world. I mean, we, we are living in the byproduct of English law and English liberties. And so I think it's very important to understand English law and English liberties. And and Tucker applied those to, to America and American conditions. So, of course, I'm, I'm podcasting from the United States, so I would want to have the good of American legal and political history preserved. And I think Tucker does that better than anybody else. He's writing this in the 18th century, and he's adapting Blackstone's commentaries on English law uh, for American circumstances. And I think that's very good. And, you know, if you look at things like civil liberties, you know, Blackstone was very interested in that. They were English liberties, not just civil liberties. So I think reading uh, St. George Tucker would be essential. Uh, ben Franklin's autobiography would be very good. Uh, when you look at uh, what Franklin said about leaving, leading a good life, uh, and, uh, you know, Franklin was uh, poor Richard, and so you have all these great poor Richard sayings, but when you read Ben Franklin's autobiography and the part where he talks about what you should do to lead a good and wholesome life, he has various things. He had 13 ideas that he wanted to follow, 13 virtues, essentially, that he wanted to follow in his life to try to lead a good life. And these are things that are important, uh, you know, Franklin was uh, the American sage. He was a very important guy in American history. But uh, he's, he's also important because of this philosophical tradition that he, can leave, that he left behind for us in his autobiography. Now, I mean, I think Jefferson's great. There are so many people that I think are great in the founding generation. Uh, in, and um, some of those things, of course, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee's father, uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, left behind several maxims that I think are important. But Franklin... Is doing it, and it's a concise way to get it. Uh, you know the the virtues that he thought were important to live life fully and in concert with your fellow man. And again, we're restarting civilization here, so we're going to need that kind of stuff. In that same vein, I think another important book uh, on how to act would be Castiglione's *The Courtier*. So uh, Baldassare Castiglione wrote this book in the Renaissance period, and this was *How to Be a Man of the Court*. And it essentially is the foundation of uh, Renaissance, uh, you know, or late Middle Age, early Renaissance uh, ethics, uh, chivalric ethics. 
how to speak to women, how to act in the court. One of the things that's important is, uh, you know, you had to be martial. You had to understand the, uh, how to fight. But you also had to be well-read and well-versed. You had to show leadership. And then there was the part that was the sprezzatura. This had to be effortless. But there was a way to act. And I, I think that what we have in American society today, and a friend of mine and I were talking about this, American society has adopted a trash element that's become the dominant, ele- dominant element of American culture. It's trashy. What, what Castiglione was saying is that, no, 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 the, the best in society have to lead. What we've allowed to happen, and maybe democracy is the root of all this, no one wants to be seen as better than any other, but that's not, that's not how you create a civilization. You have to have the best lead. They create the examples that everyone else wants to live by. And this is something we forget in modern America. This is, you know, maybe in some ways where democracy is dangerous because now the worst can lead. I mean, look at, look at uh, who the Democrats have nominated for president. One of the most corrupt, awful people to ever be nominated by a major political party. So the worst is leading. And I mean, lying becomes standard. Uh, you can even criticize Trump for some of the same things. So the worst is actually leading society now, not the best. Because they have to appeal to the worst. And so Casaglione's point was that the best had to lead, and they had to act a certain way to lead. I mean, Franklin's saying the same thing. But we oftentimes, throughout American history, when you go back in the founding generation and moving forward, the best were leading. Now we've gotten the worst leading. So maybe we need a civilization reboot now. We don't even have to have civilization fall apart. And essentially, I believe that. What we're trying to do is have a civilization reboot now. Don't get involved in trash culture, trash society. That's dangerous. It's bad. And Castiglione go a long way to helping promote the best. You know, we want men of talent and women of talent to be leading, not being led. And... One thing that you know this leadership conference talked about was your was your leadership skills, not your IQ. They call it your EQ and how to interact with people. Uh, and that's the sprezzatura, right? How to interact with people, how to engage people, how to get them to believe in you and your leadership. And that would be that effortless intelligence and how to converse with people how to make them see your point. But finally, uh, in, a situa- in a situation where you would have to have interaction between groups, some of this time would be hostile. There's no, there's no doubt about it. You would never have a situation, history of man has shown, that interaction between groups becomes hostile. So in that particular instance, you would have just wars, of course, and so we've talked about this. But if you had to wage a war and you had to get people moving forward you would need to read Sun Tzu's Art of War. Uh, I mean, you could talk about Clausewitz and uh, his treatise on war, which is good, but Sun Tzu had a greater element to that, and it was things like espionage and then how to interact in other, between groups and other ways, how to know your enemy. Uh, and I think that, you know, I did a podcast, Know Your Enemy. So how do you know your enemy? Well, you have to know them very well, uh, and that helps you defeat your enemy. And your enemy could be an outside force. It could be an inside force. You could have uh, disruption within your group. And how do you take care of that? That comes down to leadership. And 
It doesn't always have to be violent, but how do you take care of it? How do you neutralize a threat? And so um, the art of war in this particular case would be very good uh, for understanding that, how to neutralize a threat, external or internal, how to get people moving in a direction that would reach success. And so that's the 10th book. So what I've done here is given you 10 books that I think you should read. Not all of them are easy to read. Not all of them, honestly, are enjoyable to read. They're not something you're going to sit down and think, yeah, this is great. I can't wait to sit down uh, and just read this book. It's going to just pass the time. These are books that you have to chew on. They're not necessarily easy reads. But I think that if you're thinking about civilization, even today, I mean, I I could say we're, we're having to reboot civilization now. We've gotten to a point where civilization needs a reboot. We have this trash culture. We need leadership. We need people that are that are uh, the cream of society leading and not the trash of society leading. And I think that's, that's where this type of material is important. We don't read these things anymore. We read uh, trash. So if I could recommend 10 books to you to try to restart civilization in your own home, think locally, act locally, do these things in your home with your family and your friends, read these books, converse about these things. And I think that will help you Build civilization. Of course, there's other books you could read in this regard too, but I just had to take 10. I would read these 10, and then there was others that I'd want to read as well, but this is a good start. So I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Brian McClanahan Show. It's a little more philosophical and uh, historical in terms of, you know, what to read, and uh, I'll see you next time.